3: Wednesday morning the 17th of July Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am This is Michael Reed on LMFM Ursula von der Leyen has made history by becoming the first woman to be elected President of the European Commission The 60-year-old is the mother of seven children who as a close ally of the German Chancellor Angela Merkel became the first female Minister for Defence in Germany She was nominated for the position by the leaders of 28 European countries with her nomination ratified yesterday by the members of the European Parliament. The European leaders had struggled for three days to find a compromise candidate before nominating von der Leyen to the position and her victory yesterday was secured by a narrow majority of 383 MEPs voting in favour to 3 127 MEPs who voted against Miss van der Leyen becoming uh, the President of the European Commission for the next five years Luke Ming Flanagan, Independent MEP was one of those who voted against uh, the nomination and joins us now. A very good morning to you Ming and thanks uh, for taking the time to be with us. Why did you vote no, a- against her taking this position?
4: Um, I voted against her because uh, she goes against an awful lot of what I believe needs to be done uh, by the European Union and uh, one of the big things that I'd have a problem with her uh, about is the fact that she says she is a supporter of a European army. She's also uh, a supporter of moving away from unanimity on making big decisions at European Council level to a qualified uh, majority and also um, uh, she is basically saying one thing on climate change uh, that uh, she's going to try and achieve something on it and and make a big statement in the next 100 days uh, while at the same time uh, the next commission or the previous commission and this commission is going ahead with it Mm. have uh, provisionally signed off on a Mercosur deal that will do anything uh, other than uh, mitigate against climate change in fact it will make climate change worse and more problematic for the human race
3: okay maybe we'll come back to that in a a moment uh, because I think there probably are arguments against that point of view Uh, but she was a very popular minister when she first became uh, the German minister for defence Uh, but I think by all accounts at this stage they'll be glad to see the back of her
4: Yeah, well, we hear about uh, reports of uh, the German uh, army on uh, uh, training patrols uh, using uh, sweeping brushes instead of guns, but uh, look, a lot of people are focusing on that and kind of uh, making funny comments about it when, in fact, uh, really when it comes to what she's going to be doing in the future, Mm -hmm. I don't think it has much bearing on it. What we need really to focus on are her statements in support of the idea of a European army, and we need to Look at what its uh, impact that will have on Ireland, uh, a country that is meant to be neutral, a country that uh, joins this economic community to trade with other nations, not to get involved in war games. So but there's, um,
3: there's, uh, there's, there's and that's very little,
4: little would have to uh, ring alarm bells for people. Well,
3: there's very little difference in terms of uh, the European Union's attitude towards integration, not just in terms of uh, defence, but in many respects, including. Uh, the idea of having European budgets and the European Finance Minister these are all things uh, that von der Leyen uh, is said to support Uh, but uh, that's probably why she was nominated by Emmanuel Macron Well,
4: then, uh, if that is the case and we're taking that as a given and it's hard to argue with anything that you've said there, then we've got to ask the question, why are Irish MEPs supporting it? On one hand, they support a candidate that supports further EU integration, Mm. uh, supports the idea of common tax rates, supports the idea of a European army, uh, while at the same time we have Fine Gael MEPs and Fianna Fáil MEPs who say they don't support any of this. But they will still vote for her. Mm. So I mean, that is an obvious uh, contradiction for the Irish public. Now we also have uh, the problem about uh, this Spitzen candidate process uh, that a lot of people are talking about around here. But uh, I doubt there's many people talking about it in the on the streets of Louth or County Roscommon. And the fact this is basically the situation whereby, in the run-up to this election, apparently voters were given a choice of voting for if they voted for Fianna Gael they would get a man called Manfred Weber as the European uh, Commission President. If they voted in more uh, left-wing route, let's say for Labour or the Labour Party in England or the equivalent of Labour parties around the European Union, they would get Franz Timmerman. At the end of the process, they didn't actually get that. That process didn't follow through at all. And uh, really, all we've seen is rancour and arguments among the top guys and the top uh, women in the European Union. Union about the fact that they made a promise before the election that they'd follow a particular route, and then after the election they decided to go a completely different route. Now I don't know which is more worrying, that they didn't keep their promise or the fact that for probably the most powerful position for 500 million people in the European Union, that the vast majority of people didn't know about this process in the first place. Mm -hmm. And it suggests to me that there is a massive disconnect and that's worrying.
3: Well, they couldn't uh, agree. They were locked in for three days Uh, trying to uh, agree on a a candidate uh, and uh, that uh, ended up in uh, this position where Ursula von der Leyen has uh, been the compromise candidate, if you like. Uh, And when you talk about a a European army, she's been talking about European troops coming together uh, to act as a a defensive force. uh, But one that would... Complement NATO, I, I think is what she was suggesting, rather than working under a NATO banner, which would in effect be a, an army of its own right.
4: Yeah, indeed, it would be an army of its own, right? And okay, while I don't uh, like uh, her politics, I don't agree with her politics. Uh, there's one thing you'd have to compliment her on: she is as clear as day about where she wants to go. The problem we have in Ireland is that we have politicians who are supporting her candidacy, yet they are saying the complete opposite when it comes to policies. They're saying they don't agree with the idea of a, a, a common tax uh, rate. They don't don't agree with the idea of a European army. Mm. Uh, I agree, I I think uh, that is sensible, but at the same time, they support someone who is going to bring us down this route. Does that mean the cat is out of the
3: bag, though? Because, uh, I mean, what they do like about her is her attitude towards Brexit, uh, that she supports uh, the backstop, she's willing uh, to negotiate uh, for a longer period of time and she's happy to do whatever it takes to ensure that peace is secured on this island and uh, that uh, things continue uh, as has been the case before. But it, it is the cat out of the bag here in that all of the support that we've been um, getting from the European Union is in return for our support for a European army and integrated financial measures
4: well I don't know what the quid pro quo is but in this life you very rarely get anything for nothing and if they're coming out saying that they're showing solidarity towards us and they keep saying that on repeat and no one can argue that there has been some solidarity and a good bit of solidarity when it comes to Brexit you would obviously have to ask the question what exactly are they looking for in return and in the last couple of weeks they have taken quite literally uh, 99,000 tonnes of pounds of flesh in return in the form of the Mercosur agreement. Uh, And Phil Hogan,
3: the the Irish Commissioner Phil Hogan has been arguing, well, it's not as bad as perhaps Luke Ming Flanagan might portray it to be. Uh, And perhaps uh, you'll find uh, some solidarity with Ursula von der Leyen in that she wants a a second nomination from uh, the Irish government for the next Irish Commissioner.
4: Yeah, well, look at uh, at the at the end of the day, uh, whether uh, there is a different uh, commissioner proposed by the Irish government other than uh, uh, Phil Hogan, uh, time will tell on that. But the current situation is that we have provisionally signed off on an agreement that will mean that suckler farmers in the west of Ireland. Duckler farmers in Louth will not be able in the future to sell their product on the European Union market because they will not be able to compete with what is coming uh, from Brazil, which will actually be pre- produced by uh, cutting down the rainforest, the lungs of the planet, and basically bringing in beef that has very little traceability into the European Union, and in the long run, that will be massively damaging for rural Ireland. So whoever wow. uh, gets in there and instead of Phil Hogan, whether it's Phil Hogan mm. or himself, something needs to be done about this deal but for on one hand the European Commission to talk about climate change and then on the other hand yeah. to go along with the deal that will mean our the rainforests in Brazil are going to be cut down and they're going to export thousands of tonnes of beef across the ocean to a place that already produces the most sustainable beef on the planet mm. well then it's very hard to square that. But the system.
3: deforestation of South America is long underway and the argument uh, against what you're saying is that the Mercosur deal will bring about change because uh, they must fulfil their commitments under the Paris uh, Accord if the deal is to be finalised because at the moment it's only a political agreement
4: Yeah well okay let's say they satisfy all of that criteria and it is done in an environmentally friendly way that would be great, but that still doesn't solve the problem about the fact that we currently produce this product in Ireland, we produce it in the most sustainable way uh, possible when it comes to the suckler herd, and also the simple fact is this, would Phil Hogan live on the same level of wages that people have to live on in Brazil, and then try and survive in the European Union on it? No, he wouldn't, and the reason why he wouldn't is because he'd end up starving with the hunger. Now, if he thinks it's okay uh, to basically put farmers out of business here and put them on a pittance, well that's fine, but he shouldn't be getting support from the Irish government to be put in there for another five years to do even more damage. Fine, if we can do something about the environmental problem Mm. that would be at start but it doesn't solve the problem about bringing very, very cheap products into this market, into a market where people have to pay real prices to live and could not live on the wages that people live on in but, but very Maybe little. Very, very little. Uh,
3: 99,000 tons, uh, a third of what we export to, to the United Kingdom, 1.25% of uh, the overall beef uh, that's on uh, the European market uh, this year. Uh, it's uh, a very small amount of beef that we're talking about. And if They meet the criteria of this deal. They will have to live up to the European food safety standards that apply to the rest of the uh, people who trade in the European Union.
4: If we have a a, a hard border and we end up with a hard Brexit, Ireland is going to have to find somewhere else to send 250,000 tonnes of beef. At a time when we're worrying about that, the idea that they might bring another 99,000 tonnes of this into the European Union market is completely and utterly wrong and it is completely and utterly unfair. And to suggest that it will only be 99,000 tonnes would be incorrect. It would be 99,000 tonnes of the best cuts, the fillet steak, the rib steak, etc. And what that will do is make it impossible for suckler farmers for this country to compete. And if they can't compete they'll go out of business and that will be billions of euros lost to the rural Irish economy. And there might be people listening into this show who are saying, what's that got to do with me? I'm not a farmer. It won't impact on my wages. Well, the simple The fact is that those Fuckler farmers and their families and their wives and their husbands go into every town and village in this country and spend their money in hairdressers, spend their money in uh, clothes shops, spend their money in food shops, spend their money in the local mechanics. And if we end up going through with this deal on Mercosur, that money will not be around anymore. Neither will the beef farmers. But not only that, neither will the hairdressers, neither will the mechanics or neither will all the service industry that survive off it and there will be no rural Ireland in the future if we go down this road we've got to stop this whatever it takes
3: it's a very bleak picture that you paint but we'll leave it there for the moment and thank you indeed uh, for joining us uh, this morning independent MEP Luke Ming Flanagan
5: Michael Reed on
3: LMFM. Well, as you probably know, the death of uh, former Fianna Fáil councillor Tommy Byrne has uh, been announced, and uh, we'll pay tribute to Tommy throughout uh, the programme uh, today. Declan Bronock is on uh, the line. A very good morning to you, Declan. Uh, thanks for joining us on uh, this sad occasion uh, this morning. Uh, I suppose uh, it, it's didn't come as any great surprise. Tommy hadn't been well for some time, but no doubt he'll be greatly missed uh, across uh, Drogheda in particular, the town that uh, he loved uh, so well.
6: Well, firstly, uh, Michael, uh, you're absolutely correct, but I would like to pay my Sympathies to Kathleen, his wife, obviously Thomas, my colleague in the doll, indeed James, my new colleague, and uh, Mary, who would be a very active member in the Fianna Fáil National Executive, but also to obviously his other children, Brendan, Barry, Kate, and Noreen. You know, the family are devastated, as they have said. Um, you know, it, it's all we can do is offer condolences as we have done this to to Ottawa Tully and indeed the many tragedies in the last number of weeks. Look Tommy, was 40 years in local property sales. Almost 40 years of local politics, and as I said, a former colleague on the local council with me, uh, a party leader. This is a draw of the last year, and I was absolutely amazed at Tommy's popularity in the streets. There wasn't one person that didn't know my his name. Uh, and uh, as you rightly said, he was proud of Larry, mm-hmm. proud of his town of proud of his family, and proud of his business. And you know, the description around you know being a force and a legend. Uh, uh, not alone that but he was an expert on the whole issue of valuation mm. property prices and you know that was his 40 on Low County Council so, uh, I have to say he was always tuned into the issues very independent in mind often would go his own way which I admired because he stuck to his own principles but the one thing that really amazed me in that illness since Christmas uh, I was on two occasions canvassing in Drogheda with James Tommy and Kathleen were out there not for a huge period of time, but there in support. Not alone that, during the European elections, uh, when Brendan Smith was canvassing the area, Tommy made a point of getting out to see him. And that is the tribute to the man that, you know, despite being ill from last Christmas, 73 years of age, uh, young in, mm-hmm. in, in this day and age, Michael, but I think, uh, you know, his prowess... As, as that I certainly wouldn't have, both in soccer and Gaelic, uh, was to be admired. And uh, the fitting tributes that are coming in, I'm sure, from many of the colleagues yeah, this sure. morning, and yeah. former colleagues of our County Council and beyond, yeah. uh, I think we'll speak the volumes, I suppose. We pen, tend to pay tributes to people when they're dead, but Tommy, as I said, independent spirit, stuck to his guns on issues, and uh, proud of his family's uh, involvement in Fianna Fáil, and uh, certainly proud of the local authority, proud of Drogheda Corporation and its achievements.
3: Okay. Uh, Very passionate politician, there is no doubt. Uh, Let's hear from uh, Frank Godfrey, uh, who also would have uh, served on uh, the council with uh, Tommy for many, many years. Good morning to you, Frank, and uh, thanks for joining us. Uh, He really was a a Drogheda man, I suppose. uh, In many ways, like yourself, he'd have known every uh, nook and cranny in the town.
2: Yes, indeed. Um, Tommy Bourne was an exceptional a man, he was a proud Drahada man, an acute businessman, outspoken counsellor, and rightly said as you said, he loved Drahada and he knew Drahada inside out and he was also a great sportsman and footballer. You know, um I'm saddened by the news um to hear that Tommy has passed uh, on and um also Oliver Tully um recently all in a week or two and uh, these were two great um, uh, public representatives of drada and South Loud. And I have some great memories of Tommy. You know, Tommy was a batter. He was a fighter. He was in there fighting for the people. And he loved local politics, you know. He loved uh, yeah. uh, the meetings and coming to the meetings. And, you know, he will be certainly sadly missed.
3: Indeed, uh, Frank Marr uh, is on the line as well and uh, Frank, uh, you'd have uh, served for many years on uh, the council with uh, Tommy Byrne I- Indeed, he was a, a Fianna Fáil man through and through uh, but I, I think uh, he was an independent for a while before uh, being welcomed back into the Fianna Fáil fold Is that right? Yes,
7: Tom, he started out in politics as an independent and uh, eventually, I think he he wanted to end up in Fianna Fall, and that's where he ended up, you know. Mm. But he was a very hard-working, dedicated councillor. I served with him on both the Borough Council and Loud County Council. I can tell you the term running mate is very appropriate because he was my running mate and you had to run to keep up with Tommy. He was unbelievable that how hard he worked and uh, he never stopped. It was 24-7. And it was extraordinary that, um, you know, he built up from nothing a very successful business going back to the early 70s. And to combine that with with his work in politics, he, he was, if the term workaholic was to apply to anyone, it would definitely apply to Tommy. And any issue he ever believed in, he fought for tenaciously. I know he must, uh, there must be a huge file of, of letters he, he, he wrote to various ministers on the issue of the tenant purchase scheme. He passionately believed in a tenant purchase scheme, and I think he lobbied every minister of any party. He believed that people had the right to own their own home, and it was something that I think was a burning passion that Tommy had and stayed with him right throughout his political career. And I also remember, and, and I know people often now say it to me uh, that, that they were very grateful to Tommy. The time the, the local property tax was introduced, he helped an enormous number of people who were worried and concerned about filling in the form and trying to get a value on their property. And uh, Tommy was a great help to, to an awful lot of people at that time. And as I say, people still speak to me about that today. But just an extraordinary man his sporting career, his business Mm -hmm. career, his career in politics. And uh, I know it was something that would have given him a wonderful boost in recent months when James was elected to the council and uh, to have a son a TD and a son a councillor Uh, is a wonderful tribute to him and to Kathleen and to the whole family
3: Indeed and uh, we'll uh, remember Tommy uh, uh, in his own words if you like uh, a little bit later in the programme but thanks uh, for that Frank Marr Declan Brannock and uh, Frank Godfrey and as Tommy might have said I love my town we'll hear from him as I say a little bit later on Now this Wednesday morning the local papers are in your shops Marie Kearns is in studio with us and uh, she's going to tell us what's on the front pages of the papers this week. We'll begin in County Meath and a somewhat sinister attack on the local courthouse. That's
8: right. Um, Michael, have you got me there? Um, The Meath Chronicle is leading with a petrol bomb attack on the courthouse in Trim early yesterday morning, which has been investigated by Gardaí. Reporters Anne Casey and Paul Murphy write that a petrol bomb was thrown through a window at the front of the building in the original heritage room, which is a protected structure it caused extensive smoke damage to the small historic district courtroom, which is not in general use, but is believed, Michael, that the cost of the restoration could be extensive due to its heritage status. Of course, there's a lot of concern at what may have happened um, yesterday and um, reacting to the incident. Local TD, Paddy Tobin, is saying it was unprecedented that a petrol bomb will be thrown at Trim Cortez. And it's an absolutely shocking development.
3: OK. Rest- just to
8: say the courts did go ahead yesterday, um, you know, because the main courtroom wasn't affected.
3: OK. Respite services then making for uh, the front page story yes. in uh, the Dundalk Democrat.
8: Yes, Michael, that's uh, the paper features an interview with Elizabeth McCardle, whose brother Pat, who hasn't acquired brain injury, has been a service user of Strutton House in Dundalk since 2008. It's facing closure, and according to Elizabeth, it will have a huge effect if it goes. She says that her brother goes there maybe four times a year and loves going to it, and there's nothing else available to him in terms of respite, and as a result, she and others won't get any breaks.
3: Okay, the very tragic loss of a a very young life making for the front page story of the Dundalk leader this week.
8: Yes, Michael, the leader's paying tribute to young Joshua Hill who died after that tragic drowning accident in Carlingford last week. At the 10-year-old's funeral on Saturday his dad Peter told the congregation that Joshua would be sorely missed as he gave such energy to everything and described his son as a ray of light. Okay. meanwhile inside the paper I don't know if you do the Euro Millions Michael but maybe you should because Loud is the luckiest county when it comes to the Euro Millions according to research by the National Lottery. the wee county has topped the table with the most Euro Millions winners per head of population with 25 people having scooped the big prize over the past 15 years.
3: Okay well I think you can see that uh, by the quality of clothing on uh, people locally. Uh, let's uh, go to the Argus then also in Dundalk and uh, it's uh, remembering Irene White and how the family of uh, Irene White are saying that they will never forget her and will be always seeking justice in terms of bringing uh, the mastermind behind her killing to justice
8: That's right there the family is pledging that they're going to to see that through Michael and inside the paper on page 2 an interesting story uh, following those storms in Greece last week abetted on dog family who were caught up in that. So that's well worth the read there too.
3: Okay, and uh, then we go to Drogheda, is it? To the right. Drogheda Independence? that's right. Yeah. Okay. And of course yeah. the paper
8: had gone to press before mm. the passing of uh, Tommy Byrne yesterday and the front page is devoted to the sad death and subsequent funeral of the late Fine Gael councillor Oliver Tully with a very poignant picture of members of Ledge County Council doing a guard of honour alongside the hearse carrying his remains there's a couple of pages inside featuring tributes to Oliver and pictures depicting many aspects of his life over the years.
3: Okay, tragic week if ever. All right, uh, thanks uh, for that Marie Uh, and uh, if you'd like to comment on uh, some of uh, those uh, stories that are on the front pages of uh, the local newspapers this week, uh, Marie you'll be taking calls now over the next few minutes and back with us uh, shortly to tell us what people are, are saying or if for that matter there's something else you've been hearing uh, that you'd like to comment on or if there's an issue that you'd like to raise with us. Our telephone number is 1850 715
5: 958. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. FM.
3: Now, as we discussed on the programme yesterday, uh, primary school children are in very big classes. On average, uh, there's 24.3 pupils in classrooms in this country uh, and in fact two-thirds of children or 63% of all children are in classes of 24 or more. That's far more than the EU average of 20, 110,000 children or 19.8% almost 20% of children in classes that have 30 children or more and some 288 children are in classes of 40 or more. Let's talk about this with John Boyle who's the General Secretary with the INTO and a very good morning to you John and thanks for joining us and uh, these uh, statistics make uh, the case as far as you're concerned for for reducing uh, the ratio between uh, teachers a- and uh, pupils.
9: Did, did you, Michael? And I suppose what our major concern is is that we're so far out of kilter with OECD and European averages, and um, you know we're worse than Europe. The UK will no longer be in Europe, and in any event, um, in the UK at the moment, um, mm. they have a second adult in the classroom. So we're at the top of this league of shame, and you know in your own area there, in County Mead nearly 6,000 children in, in classes of 30 or more, which is obscene, really, when you think that's... Um, we've been campaigning on this for, for over a decade. Um, class sizes in Ireland back then were averaging at 30. Um, and as the government reduced over the last number of years, you would have expected that class sizes in County Mead would, would be down around um, the 24.3, the national average. Um, obviously, we have to get to 20, and we have a very simple plan for that simple plan is that every year for five successive years that we ask government to reduce by one it's not mm-hmm. a huge ask the cost in the budget now and in the year ahead will be about four and a half million euros um, and over a five-year period then we would eventually get to the European average and the reason we need to get there is because these children are being shortchanged they they deserve to have the same uh, skill set as their European counterparts and if they're going to be competing for jobs in, in 15 years' time, those skills that you would learn in a class of 20 uh, cooperating with your colleagues and the teacher giving you more time, more individual mm-hmm. attention would stand to you.
3: Well, I, I take it, uh, it makes for a very difficult job for your members uh, and difficult for the rest of us to try and understand how you can control a classroom full of 30 children uh, and if you can't control them, well then you can't give them the attention that perhaps uh, they deserve. If that is the case, what what's the consequence, short and long term, for the children?
9: Well, well I, I suppose in terms of you know controlling a class of, of thirty plus children, um, Irish teachers are very very skilled and very highly regarded worldwide, and um, so we wouldn't have so much difficulty nowadays with the control. But it's the, the quality of the interaction one to one time. Obviously, the less children, the quicker you get through your program, the more. Um, modules you can cover. Obviously you can um, have the children participating more in their learning, they're more engaged. It's easier to identify issues early on in a child's life if they're having you know, difficulty with special needs or uh, if they're having a literacy and numeracy problem. If you only have 20 children you give them more time, you have more cohesive culture in the class. And in the long term then, children's relationships with their peers are better in the smaller classrooms. A lot of world research done on this particularly in the younger classes. Um, it definitely pays off tenfold later on in, in areas of educational disadvantage and you know, we'll have some of those in, in, in County Mead and in County Loud. Um, they always had a, a differential class size in those but what has happened in, in the last couple of years is as government try to reduce class size for for schools, they left them behind so there's no longer much of a differential uh, between the disadvantaged schools and the ordinary national schools. So children perform better uh, in the short term and in the long term if they've had a good start in primary education well funded classrooms with uh, plenty of interaction with an individual teacher.
3: Mm. Well I I imagine it's the foundation for everything to come and if you're in a a class as some children are unfortunately that has more than 40 pupils in it uh, you're going to be significantly disadvantaged in comparison to somebody who's in a classroom with let's say less than 20 children.
9: For sure and, and any of the research that was done in New Zealand or in the USA or even in the Irish setting the department's own reports would show that small classes work very well and and you know um, it, you, you say but you know these supersized classrooms yeah. The, the disadvantage i suppose is that is that any child who is in any way we, having a weakness that is much harder to give them the individual support that they need you know it's, it's argued that so, some of the the, the brighter children will, will do well no matter what s- size the setting and and they will i suppose in some sense and,
3: would, and, and in some senses, not because there's a lot more distraction
9: yeah, and learning is different nowadays. Mm. It, it's not, um, you know, the chalk and talk of old and where the teacher imparts the information. It's all about enabling children to develop their skills so they can play and be creative and that they can cooperate with, with um, groups of other children so that they, they learn together in teams and getting out into the environment. And, you know, if, you, if you're if you're obviously just a simple one trying to take a class of 40 children on a school tour, for example, mm. or on an excursion or on a, on a field trip, you know, it's 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 nearly not safe. Um, you, you'd certainly want to be bringing a number of other adults with you and they're not available to the school, so then you're prevailing upon parents to come along and help you um, uh, who might not be trained or vetted. So it's it's a huge difficulty um, all around, but I suppose from our point of view, we're looking at the, the, the future um, for for Ireland's economy and for Ireland's workforce, and we want to make sure that the children in Ireland are in a fair stab at it, um, I mean, our funding difference mm. as well is huge compared to European averages. We're ten percent less in, in the funding of edu- primary education. Um, we're way less in primary than secondary. We have a lot of ask for this budget, but mm. we've costed them well for budget twenty twenty, yeah. and the cost is not huge. It's, it's actually our over, overall ask for budget twenty twenty as an organisation is that there would be an increase of about not point four percent, not even a half of a percentage increase in funding for education and that would enable us to start getting down with the class sizes, fund our schools properly and support our our principal teachers, particularly in um, the smaller
3: schools. um. Okay, and some parents obviously would contend that cost is a, a, a significant... Obstacle to them giving their children what they want in terms of the best education possible in a country where we're supposed to have free education, and uh, they say now, according to this Irish League of Credit Union survey yesterday, that the cost of sending a child to primary school this year will be nine hundred and forty euro, something that parents are, are struggling to meet, uh, and as a result, uh, they uh, make tough decisions, cut out extracurricular activities on some occasions. You were talking about field trips and that. Are, are you saying that type? Of pressure on parents where perhaps they can't afford to send their children on these type of trips
9: We have seen that and you know I was a principal teacher up until the 1st of March and and, uh, our school to be fair our school community um, you know it was a middle class area in South Dublin and when government uh, slashed the primary grants by 30 euro per child the the loss to our school budget uh, over those years was 24,000 every year 800 children by 30 euros so every time we lost twenty four thousand, uh, you know, it, it it added up over the last five or six years, and only for our parents bailing us out. So the parents immediately, when government cut the capitation grant from two hundred to one hundred and seventy, we asked the parents to give us the thirty euro, and mm-hmm. the vast majority of parents in our area were in a position to do so. But of course. That that's not the case in many other areas, and, and in fact, as you saw in the survey yesterday from the credit union, the legal credit unions, some parents were already strapped before those cuts took place. So we're asking that the thirty euro per child would be restored in the budget. The government has restored nine recently. There's still twenty one to go. That would take some pressure in relation to this issue of voluntary contributions, but in 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 the longer term if we're 10% below the European average in the way that we fund primary education, um, where basically even between a secondary school and a primary, uh, a child is worth €1,836 less, the government are going to have to focus on giving the children the proper start in primary. And obviously, if if they increased that uh, amount that's paid per child in primary, there wouldn't be this ask on parents. Parents are coughing up nationally €46 million per year in a local tax help keep their local schools lit and insured and cleaned mm. and and, and really that, that, that's immoral at this stage uh, 50, 50 years after Ali pronounced that there was going to be free education up to the age of 18, there's no such thing as free education in Ireland and the reason is that the funding is not going in uh,
3: directly from government. Okay John I have to leave it there but thank you indeed for joining us uh, this morning John Boyle, General Secretary with uh, the Irish National Teachers Organisation, the INTO
5: Michael, Michael Reed, Reed on, on LMFM.
3: LMFM. Uh, let's find out what you've been saying to us. Marie Kearns uh, joins us with some of uh, the calls and text messages that have been coming uh, to us uh, this morning. Busy on the phone today, Marie?
8: Yes, it is indeed, Michael. Um, first up, we have a few responses in relation to your interview at the top of the show with Luke Ming Flan- Flanagan, the MEP. Uh, Martin just says he doesn't understand why, if it's true what um, uh, Luke is saying, that Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil disagree with some of the policies of the new president. Why then would they have voted for her that that doesn't make mm. sense to him? Mm. And that's quite worrying because you think you'd only vote for someone that you agreed with. Mm, OK, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, Pat from County Kennedy- Meath.
3: Well, they agree with her position on Brexit. Uh, they don't uh, agree with her position on uh, some other aspects of the European Union and greater inter- integration in uh, the Union.
8: Um, Pat from County Mead phoned in and he says that he's very worried about the beef industry here. He says some countries don't uh, do herd testing like we have to do here and feels that the Irish industry is losing out
3: Well, they say that uh, under Mercosur that uh, whatever is imported into Europe from uh, the four South American countries will have to meet European food safety standards.
8: Um, Mairead phoned in and Mairead says that listening to all the talk uh, about the EU Parliament during the week and all the big jobs, she's just wondering, is there a need for so many positions? Can they not double up on a couple of the jobs?
3: Mm, yeah. well, it's, there seems uh, to be
8: a lot of presidents, isn't there?
3: Well, there are a lot of presidents, yes. <laughs> uh, they all have very important roles, uh, I think, in 751 MEPs for that matter.
8: OK, moving on then, Michael, to um, the late Tommy Byrne, a Fianna councillor. We had some people in touch just paying their own tributes mm. to him. Um, Jared phoned in and says that Tommy Byrne would be a huge loss to the political and business life in Drogheda. He was a very active man and I'm very shocked at his death. Catherine phoned in and she says that she was very sad to hear that Tommy Byrne had died she always voted for him him, she says because she felt that he wasn't into populist politics he stuck to his own beliefs and if he felt something wasn't right he'd say it and that's what that's what she liked about him Mm. as her councillor she felt that he was very true to his words
3: Yeah well I think there's probably a lot of truth in that quite often Tommy Byrne was a lone voice on uh, topics uh, and uh, was going against the grain, if you like, uh, and a couple of issues uh, such as uh, the traffic flow uh, in Drogheda come to mind on that. He was the only one who was voting against it. Uh, But he he certainly uh, was somebody who was... uh, determined and uh, able to stand over his conviction.
8: Jennifer says, I felt that Tommy Byrne listened to what you had to say if you had a problem, but he'd make up his own mind. Again, Mm. it's touching on on the same thing, but he'd always tell you what he thought. That's true. Uh, councillor mm-hmm. Paddy McQuillan phoned in to say that uh, Tommy Byrne was a force of nature when it came to local politics and will be very sadly missed. Says it's a very sad week in politics. Paddy says it was lovely to see the late councillor at the election count in May and Michael I can't concord with that sentiment because I was at the count myself when Tommy arrived on the second day and I actually couldn't believe I was seeing him to be mm-hmm. honest with his wife Kathleen because I knew of, it, of his illness and although he looked frail. He obviously mm. enjoyed that last Kent and the buzz of it. And it was a very special moment when his son, James, was elected and he yeah. was there to, to see yeah. it happen because I think everyone knew, you know, he didn't have much time left and it was probably going to be his last election, mm-hmm. Kent. Yeah. So at mm-hmm. least everybody has those memories to hold on to. Indeed. Mm-hmm. Uh, moving from that then, if I can, for the moment, uh, Mick phoned in and Mick... Uh, not about something we're talking about today, but he says that he'd like to see more publicity given, Michael. Uh across the board, he says, when a house is broken into in an area. And the reason for this, he says, that if people don't know that a house is broken into, they're not going to be on the alert, where if it was publicised more, it could be a warning that an area is being targeted. Mm. And he says that he would just like to see more thought being given to this. There's no point two weeks later, maybe the guardie looking you know, for help, um, you know with their investigations that it's in that time that a an area is being targeted but i suppose maybe that goes back to a neighborhood watch scheme or something like that or yeah. some kind of a text alert scheme or well, something that's
3: it yeah and i think a lot of people would be quite uh, aware if uh, somebody one of the neighbors was broken into and uh, i think quite often people will spread the word around like that uh, whether it's by text or by knocking on doors and saying just take care because there's been a break.
1: Celebrate a life well-lived in the most radiant way and save up to 30% at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com.
3: A couple of break-ins in the area.
8: We had a phone call then Mm -hmm. again on a completely Mm -hmm. different issue uh, from a County Mead listener this morning, a lady. And she just wanted to know, Michael, do you have permission to cut hedges uh, no, or not, because I've seen hedges being cut outside Navin, and I thought mm. it was a rule that you couldn't protect bird life. If it is a rule, then it shouldn't be happening, and if it's not a rule, well, that, that's fine. But I thought it was, mm. she says.
3: Yeah, well, there's a hedge cutting ban in place, uh, and there was talk that it would be lifted for the first time in a, a long time at least uh, for the month of August as a, a trial right, but yeah. uh, the Minister announced yesterday that she's not going to lift the ban in uh, the month of August so it, it, there is a ban in place uh, and you're not allowed to cut hedges at the moment uh, uh, and that is by law unless you have permission from the Council for road safety reasons.
8: Okay so that's that clarified going back then to a topic we were covering yesterday on the local property tax review and the past that it may increase uh, following your interview with the, uh, the Mayor Paul Bell. Carmel said that she listened with interest to the piece with Paul Bell and she says if the council acted faster when homes were handed back then they wouldn't have to spend so much money in doing them up again. In her own estate, a council house was handed back by a family 10 months ago in immaculate condition and since then the council have done nothing to the house. They haven't boarded up the windows or door. The door has since been kicked in, windows have been broken, the grass has grown up past the windows and the back garden is been used as a dumping site mm. and the house is going to rack and ruin. Carmel says... If the council had just stepped in and boarded it up from the start, it would have been. It would have kept the house safe and left it available to rehome another family. Maybe if more was done to protect the houses straight away, mm-hmm. then we wouldn't have this problem and yeah. as many people on the housing list. Spend a
3: penny to save a pound, type of thing. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, it's a valid mm-hmm. point, I suppose. Mm-hmm.
8: Julie also got in touch, and she feels that the housing crisis is the government's fault, and she says that there really needs to be an all. Ireland effort to look at how properties are dealt with when, you know, they come out of, oh, well, they, when someone leaves a property. Mm. And she feels that more money needs to be invested by the government in social housing and that you can't expect ordinary householders to pay for this
3: Mm. I don't know I really don't understand the logic of it uh, because uh, it's uh, a story that is undoubtedly duplicated right across uh, the country and uh, if you're talking about freeing up 70 houses for a million euro or whatever it is uh, well it sounds like a a lot of money but how many houses would you build for that and they're talking Mm. about building houses I mean you might get four or five houses uh, at best given uh, the ridiculous prices uh, that uh, the government seems to be paying for new housing
8: John says that while he can see where Paul Bell is coming from to a point because we have such a big homeless crisis and to try and at least get those houses back into operation, he doesn't think increasing property tax is necessarily the way to do it because yeah. once it's done it's it's permanent more or less he can't see it going back down, and that's what people are worried about he He believes that many wouldn't mind. contribute a ones-off payment if they actually felt they were help helping to take somebody off the streets if you like, Hmm. but just doesn't think that's the way to do it.
3: Okay, well as I say I mean instead of getting four or five houses or two or three houses as uh, might be the case for a million euro, uh, I think it probably would be an idea to spend the money and get the 70 houses back up and running.
8: Yes, Mag says, why should homeowners pay for a cancelled house to be done up? When I moved into my house, all I had was one sink unit in the kitchen. Little or nothing, Michael, and it took, to, mm. took me a long time yeah. to get everything that I needed.
3: Yeah, well, not going to happen these days, not allowed, not permissible.
8: All right, we'll finish on that, Michael. Okay,
3: thanks for that. And thanks to everybody who has been in touch with us. If you'd like to add to what's being said, as always, we'd love to hear from you. Our telephone number is 185715958. Michael, Michael Reed on
5: LMFM. on LMFM.
3: The campaign against uh, the North-South Interconnector is concerned uh, because it believes uh, the contracts uh, for the design, test and supply of materials have been signed. Uh, we're joined uh, by Porik O'Reilly, who's spokesperson for the NEPPC. And a uh, very good morning to you, Porik, and uh, thanks for joining us here on the programme uh, this morning. Uh, you're concerned that you're hearing different messages, at least, from government.
2: Yeah, good morning, Michael. Um, well, I guess we're, we're hearing uh, the message, and it's more than a message now because it's on the doll record, uh, that uh, a contract has been awarded last month in June uh, for the design, test and supply of the of the materials, uh, the steelwork for the north-south interconnector. We have been told for the last number of years that no contract would be awarded until uh, full planning approvals had been received both north and south of the border until all legal avenues had, had, had expired. Mm. So on one hand, we've heard from our, our politicians locally uh, and even recently, in an in interview with Damien English, this was, was reiterated that nothing uh, would be signed in terms of procurement. But we see now on the record of the doll that uh, significant contracts have been awarded for supply.
3: Right. So, uh, um, and when, when you say steel, you mean the pylons themselves?
2: Yeah, it's for the steelwork, so it's it's mm. for the pylons, uh, the design, which means it, it must be a customised design. Uh, it's not an off-the-shelf thing. That uh, they have now been tested, and the supply contract has been awarded. Um, uh, but but let me say at the at the outset, Michael, w- one thing about that awarding the contract you know it, it changes absolutely nothing on the ground for, for anybody listening in and thinking well that it's a done deal because uh, you know there's plenty of plenty of e voting machines gathering dust uh, that have been supplied in the past and and, and the lesson there is unless you have public acceptance mm. it doesn't matter what contracts are are, are awarded uh, uh, you, you have to get the approval of the public to bring this along
3: and you, you're so, uh, suggesting is that these...
2: one of, of, of um of due process Uh, and we don't need to rehearse all the issues around the National Children's Hospital or National Broadband Plan to to know that there has to be a significant improvement on how procurement happens from state companies Mm. and this is the issue we we want to raise because the process here seems absolutely uh, unbelievable in terms of how how it has happened
3: Okay, but uh, you're suggesting that these steel pylons will gather dust like those electronic voting machines
2: Absolutely, um, uh, as I said, and, and the uh, e-voting machines are, are a classic example of uh, jumping jumping the mm-hmm. gun and going ahead with a project that has not received public acceptance. So we're not concerned that this contract has been awarded and we're, uh, we're, we're not concerned in relation to this moving uh, forward. Um, what we're saying is that from a, a due process standpoint, really and truly this needs to be brought up uh, at dull level by our opposition parties in terms of how this has happened because if you think about it well, you have it a state to... company mm-hmm. um, awarding uh, a, a, a state contract um, for millions of euros uh, you know two, mm. three, 300 million euros potentially mm. without planning permission even being granted mm. and we are told all along about the importance of on board Planola and their equivalent in Northern Ireland and the independence of that and yet, you have the department here, and the minister, and the utility regulator signing off on, on this contract to be awarded before permission is even granted. Um, is that, that what is happened, totally, though? Totally uh, I
3: mean, uh, incorrect. As, uh, as you say, Porik, uh, Damien English, Minister Damien English, uh, uh, Junior Minister, but meanwhile, T D uh, did move to reassure people on the programme by stating that that wouldn't happen. But you're saying that that is what's happening—that the government has committed if you like, to paying out two or three million euro for these pylons and there's no going back on that now.
2: Two or 300 million euros going back on Michael, again all of this is always clouded uh, mm. in secrecy, I mean we put in a number of freedom of, oper- uh, freedom of information queries when mm. this was originally uh, commenced in September 2017 and we never got any uh, detailed response as to exactly what the contract involves mm. but if we read uh, the plain English from the Minister of State and from Minister Bruton, they have said that uh, a contract has been a Awarded uh, for the design, test, and supply of the steelwork, mm. and that's on the record in the Dawes.
3: However, Minister Bruton said under this framework there will be no supply of materials until the planning process in Northern Ireland is complete.
2: Yeah, they won't actually maybe supply them, but if they've awarded the contract, then and if it's a commercial uh, operation, they will they will have to have. Uh, Put all of the the work into the design and and the supply and the procurement of those materials. That's the normal assumption you can take from from a contract being awarded. It's not being it's not sitting there in abeyance. It's being awarded, and that's the the issue we have. And and from the track record of Airgrid and indeed the government on this, we have no faith in in the statements that are being made. When we see in reality what is happening on the yeah. ground.
3: Well, we don't know. I suppose that's the big question: if that is the case, or if there's a, a get out clause uh, on uh, the government side, uh, because the Minister said that there can be very long lead times into these type of projects, uh, and that to get the process underway, I suppose, Yeah, but Michael, you can't, just
2: because a long lead in time for anything doesn't mean you can usurp due process. I mean, many projects have long lead in times. You know, again, look at the National Children's Hospital it's been talked about since 2004. That doesn't mean that it's fine to go ahead before you have planning permission uh, with what is, at the end of the day, the, the, the public's money uh, and make a judgement what, what if there's no planning permission allowed in the north which mm-hmm. is highly highly likely but that's what I mean uh, Maybe what happens a- then in terms of accountability at, at ministerial level well
3: perhaps there's a get out clause in this contract
2: but why, why, should, why should that it doesn't um, go
3: to design but that it, it, it's in the queue if you like uh, but it doesn't actually go to design uh, until such a, a time that the planning has been approved
2: but you 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 cannot put uh, the public's money on the hook on a get-out clause for something that should never have started. If due process has been followed, a contract should never even be initiated, never mind awarded, before planning application is is granted. And and you know why why uh, why can a regulator sign off on a contract for something that hasn't even been approved? I mean, it makes a joke of the whole on board panala planning permission and the equivalent in Northern Ireland, and it makes a joke of what as our utility regulator supposed to be uh, monitoring and, and, and checking out what, what the state companies are doing I mean ESB Networks is, is solely a contractor on this project it's not even the developer Airgrid is hmm. and here you have a subcontractor awarding a contract for hundreds of millions of euros in Northern Ireland which it is, do- is not even part of its jurisdiction now, surely questions have to be asked in the Dáil around this. Mm. And it's not good enough to say there may be a get-out clause. I mean, a get-out clause is, is not the way to do uh, business with, with the public's money.
3: OK. Uh, Minister Damien English uh, hasn't uh, been available to us. Uh, we did make uh, contact with him over the last couple of uh, days, uh, but uh, he hasn't uh, responded uh, to our requests uh, to... Uh, address the concerns that you're raising uh, but you're convinced at this stage that the government has put millions on the line two or three hundred million on the line and that there cannot be a get out clause that that money will be committed
2: well, they've made a commitment to to starting the 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 the, the procurement contract in September 17. Um, the then minister, Nocton, uh, uh, made that statement to Monon County Council um, about a year and a half ago. So he signed off on that despite numerous challenges from from uh, the opposition parties. And Deputy Brendan Smith has has spent a long time asking many questions on this, even to get to the statement today. Um, uh, that has been signed off on, and that means commercial companies have been working on this since September 17, even though planning mm-hmm. is not being in place. And it is our um, belief, and we have not been told to the contrary, I mean, if, if what you're saying is, is possibly correct, then then let's have that out in, in, in the public domain. Uh, but all of this has been done very quietly behind the scenes by but, a subcontractor on a project uh, that hasn't even got even got full planning.
3: By Airgrid, no? No.
2: No, uh, it's ESB networks have awarded the contract. So this is, again, Michael, just showing you how, uh, how wrong it all is. Airgrid is a developer and is the owner of the planning application in the Republic of Ireland. Um, but they have given the contracting of this project to a subcontractor, ESB, to award it which again, in our view, is, is not correct. There's supposed to be a procurement strategy process uh, that, that that has to take place before any of this is allowed. And again, we haven't seen any of this, you know, we can't get access to any of this information. Mm. So, um, you know, it just smells totally rotten in terms of the use of taxpayers' money on such a major, major project. And, um, and now it's on record in the doll and we're calling for charity on this and we're calling for any procurement um, uh, commitments have been made uh, to be stopped if that is now possible.
3: Okay, the minister did say that uh, no contracts on construction will be concluded. Uh, I suppose there is a question over design, is it?
2: No, what what's happened, Michael, is during the oral hearing. And again, this just shows mm. you how 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 low the the, the whole public um, involvement has been in this. When we asked during the oral hearing for what is is even the design of these overhead lines and these pylons, Airgrid refused to state the exact design. They said they they wanted to keep their options open into a whole lot of different designs and they stated that the public will will be be, um, consulted on the design, on the final design. So they needed to get a a, a company to come up with a design. They've obviously now Mm -hmm. decided on a design. There's not a word to the public. Uh, They decided on a supply. And all that's left to do is construction. But okay. construction is at the very end of the phase, Michael, and when you've, when you've awarded a contract for supply, you've, you have to have made commitments on, on, on monies, on big monies uh, prior to planning being approved.
3: Okay, well, as I say, uh, we uh, did ask Minister Damien English uh, because it was uh, the Minister who debated this with you the last time and gave the assurances based on what the Senior Minister Richard Bruton had been saying in relation to this, uh, but we hadn't been able to make contact uh, with Minister English this week. Uh, so we leave it as a, an open question uh, for the moment, uh, and perhaps uh, we can get answers in the coming days. But we leave it, as I say, there for now, and thank you indeed for joining us today. Patrick O'Reilly, spokesperson for the Northeast Pile and Pressure Campaign, NEPPC.
5: Michael, Michael Reed on LMFM. On LMFM.
3: Now, the latest concerns uh, relating uh, to cervical check have uh, left uh, some women concerned after some 800 women failed to, to have uh, their tests sent to them due to a uh, computer glitch. Uh, the Irish Independent is reporting uh, this morning that at least 26 of the women at the centre of uh, this computer glitch have had to be sent for further investigation after testing positive for the HPV virus. we Joined by Elisha Regan, who's uh, the health correspondent with the Irish Independent and writing about this, and uh, a very good morning to Elisha, and uh, thanks uh, for joining us here on the program uh, this morning. These women tested positive, but their original results were negative. Were they?
11: That's right. Yes, um, there are a group of um, fifty-two women now. Uh, th- there were eight hundred women in total um, who uh, underwent. This um, retest uh, for the HPV HPV virus. Um, no, uh, uh, this the system um, by uh, used by Sir check is that if a, a, a woman tests a positive for um, uh, l- low level abnormalities, they uh, are then um, their sample is then uh, t- tested for the HPV virus. But in 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 the case of the, these eight hundred women, um, the original testing kit, for, for want of a better word, was out of date. So they then had to be retested so then when they were retested the the they were uh, the, the tests were done by this um uh, lab in in virginia now um we know now that there was a, com- a computer glitch and mm. that uh, while the testing uh, proceeded um the the women and um um their gps weren't notified of the results so uh, of the 852 uh, women now have uh, tested uh, positive for the HPV virus and that's a different result to what they had pre- previously so um, the, according to the HHC, at least 26 of these that they know of um, have now been referred on for further investigation, and uh, probably more of, of the fifty-two. I would imagine will also have to be, um, you, you know, you refer, referred on, on onwards for more um, uh, t- tests. Yeah. So, um, the, the, the HPV virus having the HPV virus um, in itself is, is it doesn't necessarily mean that. that that there are problems, but it it it, it requires um, uh, examination,
3: and it can lead to cancer, which is why we've introduced the HPV vaccine here in young girls uh, to prevent cervical cancer.
11: Oh, indeed, yeah. Well, giving the, the 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 HPV uh, vaccine early on in, in teenage years definitely. Um, Gives a great uh, uh, level of protection then to women in adulthood. They would mm. still obviously had, need need to go for for screening, but uh, this group of women now would be, uh, you know, the, the, the likelihood is 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 that they would have missed out on on the HPV vaccine because it wasn't uh, mm. it, it wasn't made available here until uh, twenty ten. So. It, it's, it's really the next young generation that will benefit from the vaccine mm-hmm. and, that there's people, and that there's a whole swathe of women then from their 20s upwards who, 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 who very much are, are reliant on screening, screening. Mm-hmm. Uh,
3: and this lab in Virginia that you mentioned uh, I suppose uh, most of us are, are familiar now with uh, the name Quest Diagnostics uh, but uh, do you understand what happened with the test kit uh, how were these test kits out of date there's various stages
11: to all of this
3: um, the, the test Oh dear the line has dropped out and is there uh, we'll uh, try and get Violet uh, O'Regan back on uh, the line apologies for that uh, I'm not sure what happened there but uh, perhaps uh, we can restore that line now. I think uh, we should be able to uh, get back but uh, there's certainly been a a lot of uh, confusion and concern uh, and uh, a lot of questions uh, that have been asked of uh, the HSE and uh, the Minister. No doubt the Minister is asking many questions of his staff uh, because uh, he said that he'd like to have been informed about what happened in terms of uh, this computer glitch before he was which was late on Thursday evening of last week uh, before uh, the news uh, broke uh, but uh, we've uh, learned a lot about this uh, from Sharon as she's known because it was Sharon who called uh, and emailed to the Minister's office and asked where her results were only to be told on the 6th of June that uh, it was being prioritised and that is uh, one of the questions uh, about uh, the timeline in relation to all of this because the Department of Health says they became aware of the issue with computers on the 25th of June. Uh, We'll uh, take a quick break and uh, then try to restore that line with Eilish Regan.
5: Michael Reed on
3: LMFM. Now, I think uh, we have uh, restored uh, the line with Eilish O'Regan, health correspondent with uh, the Irish Independent. Uh, Apologies uh, to you and to our listeners and thanks uh, for coming back to us there, Eilish. Uh, We were uh, just talking uh, about uh, the timeline because there's a lot of questions in relation to this latest uh, cervical check scandal uh, in terms of who knew what when uh, and how Sharon, the lady who is at the centre of this, was replied to uh, by by the minister's private secretary on the 6th of June. The department said it became aware on the 25th of June. The minister has said that he'd like to have been made aware of it before he was late last week. And indeed, the patient representatives Lorraine Walsh and Stephen Teep have been saying that they were informed of this problem far too late in the day. But we do know that GPs were written to in February.
11: Well, indeed, that's right. I suppose there's a couple of aspects to this, um, Michael. Um, there's the health of the women, which is the, the, the main um, issue as to what has happened to them and you know where 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 they're at. But then, uh, parallel to that, then is the whole issue of who knew what when, etc. And. Uh, so it 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 appears that the 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 sur- survival check became um aware in february um about the um compu- computer glitch as it's known and um that it uh contact contact uh, quest and which which runs the the, the laboratory mm. and asked that that um the uh, w women and their GPs be be uh written to with results now what happened was that in February is that the women who had um, a, ch- a change in result, as, as in uh, the, the women who tested positive for H- HPV, um, their GPs were written to, but the women themselves didn't didn't get a- a- any any um, letter. But that was just that that applied to only 52 of the 800 women. So there were the vast majority of them uh, of, of, of the other women who who didn't actually have a different result and who were, I suppose, given the all-clear, you could say. Mm. Uh, but it, their, the Quest did not send out any letters to their GPs or to, to the individual women. So they they, they were none the wiser as to whether or not they had a problem or not. But um, so I suppose uh, the question is uh, why... Um, cervical check uh, didn't um wasn't more proactive uh, in in checking with quest as to what happened mm. um and uh, there's a whole gap in in, in information um, th- um this woman um Sharon who was very uh, persistent and um who, was, who really exposed all of this um wasn't getting her her results and she was um emailing the uh, cervical check and the department of health and uh, but it, it, there was no join it it didn't seem that it whatever uh, uh, there were gaps obviously in communication and uh, um it, it didn't it didn't click anyway with, with um either the department um or um the HSE or survival check that this related to um the problem um uh, um with the computer in um virginia in, in the united states Um, Now, the the minister says that he he wasn't actually informed of this until Wednesday, but um, there are major Mm -hmm. questions to be asked really about um, cervical check as to why um, it didn't, uh, number one, follow up on the instruction to the laboratory in February to to send out the letters, and number two, then, why uh, it didn't actually tell the patient representatives about this uh, Mm -hmm. at, at their group meeting, but also the Department of Health. Uh, um, they would obviously have officials who are monitoring and um, involved with this, this whole, um, you know, cervical mm-hmm. check, uh, uh, the, the running of cervical check, and uh, the follow-up to the last scandal. And uh, why why didn't they actually uh, uh, become um, alert to the fact that, that there was uh, that 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 that? This, that there was a problem in relation to um, a whole group of women who were, who were not mm-hmm. getting re- results it, it seems to be a very passive type of, of response.
3: Uh, and of around. course there's the questions about the test kits uh, and the kits being out of date uh, because uh, it's uh, the same samples that were retested uh, in newer uh, in-date kits that found some problems, albeit low-grade problems.
11: What, indeed, like and it's very unfortunate for the women who, who were caught up in this, and number one uh, you, you know they were they, they were found to have the low grade abnormalities, and then obviously the next step after that then would be to test uh, to test them for the HPV virus, and um, and then the first test. Uh, because this kit was out of date um uh, they, they, they they that they had to be go back the, the, the whole um, process had to be repeated again so mm. th- that that added up of course to, to the to the stress and and to the worry of the women and then on top of it all this computer glitch and nobody communicating with them so it's it's extremely unfortunate and um uh, there's a, a review now that has been set up uh, um by um the hsc it's it's being uh chaired by uh, dcu president professor uh, brian mcgrath and he is going to um look at that whole issue of uh, you know the communication gaps etc mm. um so that should throw some light on uh th- th- who 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 knew what and who didn't who didn't act and why they didn't act and hopefully lessons will be learned again but um but we we're for, we've we've for, we're forever seem seem to be going um you know uh, around in circles in terms of you know cervical check really that, that, that they, they 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 should they should be learning lessons and and they haven't in fairness in, in many ways but mm-hmm. um the the whole issue of communication still seems to have major weaknesses
3: Okay, we'll leave it there for the moment Irish. thank you indeed uh, for joining us uh, this morning, Irish. Regan, health correspondent uh, with uh, the Irish Independent Now, as you know uh, people in Drogheda are mourning the death of former councillor, former Fianna Fáil councillor Tommy Byrne and condolences uh, to his wife Kathleen and his seven children, many of them well known to you Uh, Tommy himself well known uh, to you uh, if uh, you're Uh, resident in Drogheda, or if you listen to this programme, in fact uh, he was on the programme of course many times over the years and uh, was a a well-known figure in local political life and uh, had a a great passion uh, for his politics and indeed parts of the politics of running the town of Drogheda and the cottage hospital, uh, one of uh, the issues that was of particular concern to Drogheda. There was a a time when there was talk of uh, the cottage hospital being closed or being sold, as uh, the case may be. And it it was Tommy Byrne, who, as you know, is an auctioneer as well, who discovered that that really wouldn't be possible.
12: It's owned by the HSE under lease for 99 years, from 1988 at a rent, of £5 in old money if demanded. In other words, 635 euros And crucially for the campaign, of course, to save the college hospital, the building can only be used for the statutory functions of the then NEHB, the North Eastern Health Board.
3: Mm. Or, or the HSE today. It the HSE. And, received, and I, think
12: so. I think this is incredible news because, you know, you couldn't close the premises because it's impossible for the HSE to sell the premises commercially. Mm. And I say the college can only be used for health purposes. Mm. And they are paying Michael uh, huge rents around the town of Drogheda and other parts of the country, and uh, to give up this property, uh, the cottage, when they have it for an annual peppercorn rent of an old, uh, f- an old fiver.
3: Yeah. If demanded. If uh, demanded. By whom? Do we know who they're leasing well, it from?
12: See, the, the, by, the, by the trustees of the College Hospital, who acted in the magnificent gesture, on, I suppose, the acting, uh, uh, in the in the wonderful addition of the founding members of the College Hospital, Miss Hunt and the Miss Smiths, and for the benefit of the people of Goherter. And I, 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 I believe that the news will certainly... Uh, you know, we'll we'll put the HSE thinking again because it should give a great campaign to the campaign to save the cottage hospital.
3: The late Tommy Byrne and uh, the Spanner, he put it in the works of uh, the argument uh, that uh, there was a risk that the cottage hospital would be sold. We'll hear more from uh, Tommy Byrne before we finish today, but uh, let's uh, turn our attention once again uh, to uh, the incoming president of the European Commission, Ursula von der Leyen.
13: Well, I may be speaking from the back of the chamber today, but as I predicted last time I was here, in the European elections, the Brexit party were very much to the front of the elections and massive, massive winners. And I come back to a place that has been humbled and humiliated. The European Council stitch-up has rendered this place impotent until today, when you've got some real power if you choose to use it. What you've seen from Ursula von der Leyen today is an attempt for the European Union to take control of every single aspect of our lives. She wants to build a centralised, undemocratic, updated form of communism that will render nation state parliaments where the state controls everything, where nation state parliaments where nation state parliaments will cease to have any relevance at all I have to say from our perspective in some ways I'm really rather pleased because you've just made Brexit a lot more popular in the United Kingdom thank God we're leaving but it is in the aspect of defence that I think people's minds should be focused she's a fanatic for building a European army but she's not alone when it's completed NATO will cease to exist or have any relevance in Europe at all. And, of course, not to be left out of this, French President Emmanuel Macron, on Bastille Day last Sunday, stood at the front of an open-top car with his nascent European Defence Force behind him, looking for all the world like an updated version of Napoleon. (laughs) Be in no doubt, be in no doubt, Five years of these people, the European Defence Union will be complete. And what is there for defence can also be used for attack. And you as a House will have no control over it. Vote against this nominee. Strike a blow. For democracy, strike a blow for your citizens.
0: Thank you, Mr Farage.
14: I cannot talk about Europe without talking about our friends from the United Kingdom. For the very first time in 2016, a member state decided to leave the European Union. This is a serious decision. We regret it, but we respect it. Since then, together with the current government of the United Kingdom, the European Union has worked hard to organise the orderly departure of the United Kingdom. The withdrawal agreement concluded with the government of the United Kingdom provides certainty where Brexit created uncertainty. In preserving the rights of citizens and in preserving peace and stability on the island of Ireland. These two priorities are mine too. However, I stand ready for further extension of the withdrawal date should more time be required for a good reason. In any case, the United Kingdom will remain our ally, our partner, and our friend.
13: From Ursula von der Leyen, today is an attempt for the European Union to take control of every single aspect of our lives. She wants to build a centralised, undemocratic, updated form of communism that will render nation-state parliaments, where the state controls everything, where nation-state parliaments, where nation-state parliaments will cease to have any relevance at all. I have to say from our perspective, in some ways, I'm really rather pleased. Because you've just made Brexit a lot more popular in the United Kingdom. Thank God we're leaving.
3: Okay, they seem to be on their way. That's uh, Nigel Farage and uh, the new President of uh, the European Commission, Ursula von der Leyen. Now, as you've been hearing, the President of America, Donald Trump, has been accused of racism and we'll hear a little bit of uh, the reason why now from uh, the Speaker of uh, the House of Representatives, Nancy Pelosi.
15: It's really very, very sad. It was interesting to me and I... Spoke out about this that on Sunday in Catholic masses, and I don't know beyond that, uh, that uh, the gospel of the day was the gospel of the Good Samaritan. A person asked Jesus, What do I have to do to enter the kingdom of heaven? And Christ replied, Love thy neighbor as thyself, show mercy. That very same day, oh, and then went on to talk. And then he said, well, how do I do this? And he, you know, Jesus gave him the example of the Good Samaritan. Everyone is familiar with how a stranger helped another stranger, a foreigner helped another foreigner, the Good Samaritan. Love thy neighbor as thyself, show mercy. On that very same day, coincidentally, ironically, sadly, whatever adverb you want to use, the president was instituting raids into the homes of families. I went to Spanish Mass this weekend and saw the dignity of those families, the beauty of the children, and the fear that the president had struck in their hearts as we were listening to the gospel of the Good Samaritan, to show mercy and love thy neighbor as thyself. That very... Same day. Unfortunately, there were those who were not informed by that gospel. And so here we are later in that day. It was stunning to hear the words that were used, go home, to some of our colleagues. The same words that were used to so many people in our country, whether because they weren't born here or because they didn't look like some others here. Go home. As annoyed and as insulted as we all should be about the president saying that about our colleagues, it's also not showing mercy for him to say that about so many people in our country as he wants to split up families.
3: That's Nancy Pelosi and Donald Trump once again making the case that he is not a racist. Before we leave you today, uh, we want uh, to remember Fianna Fáil Councillor Tommy Byrne, uh, the leader of uh, the Fianna Fáil party, Michal Martin, has been paying tribute to Tommy Byrne, saying he was deeply saddened to learn of his fatal illness and of his death. He said that Tommy Byrne was a man of many interests and abilities. His family always came first. Married to his devoted Kathleen and to the father of seven adult children, his entire world revolved around them. Talking to him following Thomas's victory in 2016, Mihal Martin says he was struck by how personally he took each step in Thomas's career and he said he knew he felt the same for each of his children. Mihal Martin said, I also know that his loss will be very deeply felt by Kathleen and the whole family on, the behalf, on behalf of the the Fianna Fáil organisation he offered condolences to Kathleen Thomas, James Brendan and Barry as well as Mary Kate and Noreen uh, and we'll leave the final word on the programme today to Tommy Byrne Michael very briefly my yeah. father
12: was on duty on the Toadstool and the yeah. people that I was with his, there was a horse and dray coming up uh, Shop Street yeah. and my father ran to stop the traffic in West Street uh, Peter Street and Larrant Street hmm give uh, the right-of-way to the horse and dray come up the hill. And this man stopped him and said, you handy know you're a farmer's son. He gave the right-of-way to the horse and dray. He said, I did, he said, because the, a horse will collapse if you stop him on the hill. Mm. Similarly to Constitution Hill, you must give the right-of-way to the traffic, in my opinion, coming up to
3: Constitution Hill. Tommy Byrne, RIP. And that brings our programme to its conclusion today. God willing, we'll see you for our next programme tomorrow morning at 9am right here on LMFM. Good morning, bye-bye.